0: Welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Cain. I'm your host. And I've got a good show for you. And But i got to tell you, this show is, is really specifically uh, being done for Washington, D.C., for WPFW in Washington, D.C. And, of course, all my shows are put up as podcasts, and you can find this podcast by searching Resistance Radio with John and Regan. Um, I've, got, I've got to talk about an issue that I've talked about before, I really got to lay this one on the line, but before I do it, let me let me give my, um, do my work, I guess. For uh, for WPFW, look, we are listener-supported radio. We need your contributions to stay on the air. I need your contributions to uh, not only help keep the station on the air, but to but to make sure that management knows that you listen to this program, that you value this program, that you learn something from this program. Look, even if you don't agree with me. I'm hoping that on a weekly basis, those of you who are listening in Washington, D.C. or online realize that that I'm probably offering a perspective you're not going to get anywhere else. So you can support this great station and this show by going to the pledge line, which is 202-588-9739, or going online to their donate webpage. And I got to tell you, this is relatively new. So it's WPFWDC.org slash donate. Let me say it again. It's wpfwdc.org slash donate. And there you can make a one-time donation. You can make a time donation. You can become a sustaining member by offering to contribute on a monthly basis throughout the year. And and all of this stuff matters. It matters because we count on you for your support. We are almost entirely listener-supported radio, and we, uh, we really do need your uh, your support. So, uh, all right. Let me get let me get to the program. I have talked about race a lot, racism, not so much race, but about racism on this program quite a bit. But one of the things that I run into all the time, and look, and I I run into it in academic circles, with the media, um, talking to you know even even mixed groups of people, is when I use. The expression, when I, when I talk about the native experience being one of being victims of racism, like it makes people uncomfortable. It's like somehow the word racism is forbidden for us to use. And and look, and there's, there's no, no denying. I mean, look, we can talk about native people being marginalized. We can talk about native people being oppressed. And... And again, the word genocide is something that uh, that is becoming more and more part of the vernacular when you're talking about the native experience. But all of these ha- things happen because of racism. And you know, and I'm going to give a, a simple but easy to understand analogy here. Look, we, as, as Native people, never call ourselves tribes. That's not our word. It, it's not our word. It's not our concept. But the fact that we were called tribes, And the word tribe and tribal and tribalism are applied to Native people. It demonstrates this view that we are somehow primitive, that we are somehow unsophisticated. We are lesser than the dominant culture around us, the white culture. And, And if you don't, I mean, look up the word tribalism. I mean, I know when people are so used to using the word tribe and to a lesser extent tribal, um, but when you hear the media use words like the tribal regions of Afghanistan, or, or you know somebody you know having tribal behavior, it always means something narrow, primitive, and oftentimes um, absent of a, of a worldly view. You know this narrow focus, and 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 again, it, it is it is always used as a as a derogatory expression. So the fact that Native people are have been called tribes and many Native people refer to themselves as tribes, it shows the power of that indoctrination. But again, the mere use of the word tribe, tribal, tribalism is evidence that Native people were always viewed as lesser than the, the rest of the, the dominant culture around us. And that is essentially the definition of racism. And, and I've talked about laws that were passed specifically targeting native people on many on many occasions these laws you know claimed to have been passed because we needed this kind of oversight that we were incapable of managing our own affairs and that kind of stuff which again is a racist view but when we use that word when when anytime i suggest that our experience is a, is a, is an experience of dealing with racism, there's pushback. And, and I've got to tell you, I've talked about this on the show before, but I'm going to bring it up again. The local NPR station, local to, to me here on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation, is the is the NPR station out of Buffalo, WBFO. Now, I know we don't slam other stations, but I've got to talk about this specific incident. Myself and one of the Seneca Nation counselors, um, and I mean one of the guys on council for the Seneca Nation, met with the news department and their special desk for racial equity at, you know, at this NPR affiliate in Buffalo. Now, I've always had a decent relationship with, uh, with the with station. And, in fact, the news director was on a previous station that I always had a good relationship with. So it's not like we don't know each other. But we've never really gotten a fair shake in the media, in the mainstream media. You know, and that's why it makes me so grateful to be on a station, a great station like WPFW. But even when they do a native program, a program on a native issue or topic, you can't help but notice how whitewashed it is. And a lot of times they're feel-good stories, making it sound like, oh, yeah, the government's really stepping up for us and helping us. And, well, they're going to address the residential school issue. Deb Hallin is this, is the uh the interior secretary and she's native and she's going to look out for her own people. Look, Deb Hallin works for the federal government. She works for Joe Biden. And I don't even need to, say, need to say anything more than that. Other than other than that, she doesn't work for native people, regardless of where she comes from. But so did, anyway, this, this local NPR station, we had been in conversation with, with some of these folks to try to explain that our story is not told, even in the local NPR affiliate. And that story involves everything from you know, revenue uh, that is being taken from the state by the state from the Seneca Nation, but any a whole host of experiences that Native people have had in what is regarded as Western New York. We've talked about the mascot issue, we talked about a number of things. And you know, you know I, I sat, sat there talking with these with these two individuals, the news director and the racial equity um, uh, person. And I thought we got through to them. Well, this happened to be taking place, I don't know, about the twelfth, eleventh or twelfth of uh, of May. Well, a couple of days later, a white boy from down near the Binghamton area of New York drove over a hundred miles to get to Buffalo to shoot and kill a bunch of black people in a at a supermarket in a in a in a black neighborhood of, of eastern Buffalo. And immediately, there was this, uh, this new defining moment about what was racism. And racism was, these, was all of a sudden this, these hate crimes. And I'm not suggesting that that it wasn't racism that, that drove this kid to do it. Clearly, he, it was. I mean, he had this manifesto and all this other stuff, and he was clearly a white supremacist but from the from day 1 i felt compelled to to make it clear especially to the to the local npr affiliate look let's not get carried away here let's not pigeonhole racism as a white boy with an ar15 killing black people because he isn't born that way there's a whole lot that happens in the environment in the systemic nature of racism that gets somebody to that point And part of that includes native people. I mean, we can talk about 1619. We can talk about the African slave trade, the transatlantic African slave trade. We can talk about Jim Crow and uh, reconstruction and all that stuff. But we're here through all of that. And we are part of it. Let me remind people, (laughs) the first transatlantic slave ship wasn't carrying African captives. It was carrying native captives from the Caribbean. And in fact, it was it was Columbus's ship that was bringing, and, and in many cases, native, young native girls back to Spain to be slaves. And in their cases, sex slaves. So we can't, you don't get to 1619 without, go, without going through 1492. You just can't get there. Now I'm not suggesting that you know the the African slave trade hadn't begun before 1619, but if we're going to talk about this hemisphere and and the, and the slave trade, you it starts with native people being enslaved, and in fact, African the African slave trade depended on the native slave trade. To, to become prosperous here uh, what do I mean by that well if you if you've ever seen the movie Rumble how the Indians rocked the world there's a section that talks about the uh, again again the relationship between between black people who were forced to come to this hemisphere and native people who were oppressed by by white people when white people got here but what they talked about are those slave ships on those slave ships it was almost entirely... Male, uh, male African captives. They brought men, not not so much they didn't bring women, not so much anyway. Why? Because the the, the plan and the objective was, oh we have women that we can breed slaves with you know back uh, back in the Western hemisphere. They had to be native women. And that is one of the reasons why there is a lot of truth to to many of the descendants of African slaves, or the African slave trade. I hate referring to any human being as a slave. But the descendants of that era, many of them have native ancestry because native people were used as, you know essentially as broodmares for the for the slave trade. So my point is you can't even talk about slavery without us being a part of the conversation. And I'm not and it doesn't take anything away from the black experience and the horrors of the black experience. But my point is, how do you have that conversation and completely exclude Native people? How can we have conversations about critical race theory, which is supposed to be the intersection of racism and law and policy and regulations, if we're not going to talk about the a ton of laws that were passed specifically to take away from Native people? I mean, when we talk about a critical race theory oftentimes we're talking about laws that that don't necessarily on paper single out black people but in practice and in policy and in, from a regulatory standpoint this is where redlining comes from this is how black people are excluded from the gi bill that's how all, you know, so many of these things that were clearly racist in it, while when they were enacted the reason they could slide them through as laws, as pieces of legislation, is because it doesn't really say anything in the law. But you know what? When it comes to Native people, the laws are very specific. We're going to take something from them. We're going to force Native people to be citizens of the United States—not offer, but force it. We're going to declare it. We're going to change the definition of Native people. I mean, these are all laws that were passed: the the Indian Citizenship Act, the uh, the Indian Reorganization Act. We're going to do away with with traditional government. We're going to we're going to convince all Native peoples to be. You know, to be little constitutions that that model themselves after the United States and we're going to redefine what a native person is we're not going to redefine we're not going to define them as distinct and sovereign people no no we're going to define them as subordinate to the laws of the United States well that's all part of the law I mean and that's legislation that's not even the racist court rulings that have happened over and over and over again which is a part of that analysis in critical race Theory but I got to tell you, I don't know anybody who's even talked about critical race theory who has entertained the idea of including Native people into in that conversation. So my, my question is, what is the aversion? Why is there such a fear to even acknowledge that the Native experience has been an experience that has been all about White supremacy and racism. You don't commit genocide against the people because you honor and respect them. You commit genocide against the people because you don't believe they have a, uh, that they're necessary, that they are that they have value. That is the definition of racism. Now, I'm not saying that all genocides are tied to racism, but there's other things that you can be uh, prejudiced about. You can be prejudiced because of religious belief or ethnicity not necessarily racism race but uh, or the perception of race but for for people who look completely different than white people whether that's black people or whether it's native people that there's no question that this wasn't just a, a cultural difference we were being pegged look they museums in the united states still have thousands of skulls of native people. They were so hell bent on trying to prove that native people were somehow subhuman. Oh sure, they they did it to black people too. But there was an analysis, and you can go right through American history up to fairly recent, where every president of the United States made clear their views on white supremacy, including Abraham Lincoln, but you go right up through the Teddy Roosevelt, right up until the, the modern era. Then finally, there was enough uh, sense to say, well, that may not be that politically correct to, to continue to call Native people, you know, merciless Indian savages like Thomas Jefferson in, did in the, in the Declaration of Independence. Finally, there's like, well, we're, we're not going to characterize people that, although we're still going to pass very racist laws. And we're still going to treat Native people as inferior. And, and in fact, part of the reason that Native people are still inferior is because we, we blindly allowed the reservations. We allowed Native people to live in, in distinct territories, although most of those territories were greatly diminished. They weren't necessarily even the places that were our homelands. That's the whole the whole reservation system was based on moving Native people out of the way of white people. But, by, but the system that is created out at of the at a res, a reservation system, which was overtly racist, made sure that we lived in poverty. Now, nobody has to say that that was the, the goal. But just like when we talk about critical race theory as, as it applies to, to the black people, you can just look at the, at, at, the, at the result and then back out the causation. The reason native territories are in the condition that they are from a poverty standpoint is entirely because of US policy and state policy. Our territories were designed to fail. I mean, part of the the rationale for residential schools was because our territories were impoverished. Alcohol was rampant on our territories. We didn't make alcohol, but it managed to get to our territories. And Just like black people didn't make crack cocaine, but it managed to get into black communities. There is a design here. When we talk about systemic racism, I wanna be clear here. We are not talking about some sort of systemic failure. No, this is a systemic design. This is the intent. Look, if you want to keep casting Native people as primitive, then you got to make sure that that, that they, they can't succeed by any of the conventional standards for success. And if you are going to allow Native people to succeed, you've got to convince them that the only road to success is getting off is surrendering your connection to your to your territory, to your homes. You've got to leave. You got to go to the city. Look, there were specific policies in the United States that almost forced Native people to leave their territories and take jobs, that, jobs and, and crappy housing that was made available to, to them in the cities. I mean, this is history, but it's, it's ugly history, so nobody wants to talk about it. But I've got to, folks. I've got to tell some of these truths. Because the reason we exist in the, in the way that we exist today, the reason we are still saddled, just like I mean, the, the same reason that, that, that black people are still saddled with such high levels of racism and poverty and, 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 and all of that is because of the history that gets us to where we are today. Racism hasn't been solved Putting a black man in the white house didn't solve racism. Putting a native woman in the interior department didn't solve racism. In many ways, it made it worse. I mean, part of it is we we get this notion that all right, we don't need to talk about making anything better. We we solved the problem. There, we don't need to have a conversation about black reparations. You had Obama for president. You don't that that there's your reparations. We hear the same thing about Native people being elected into Congress or, or getting appointed into these, you know, this cabinet position for Deb Hallen. That's not restoring something to us. That's taking more of us and, and putting it in your system. That's more forced assimilation. And I've said it before, but let me be clear again. Assimilation is genocide. Now look, if I go someplace and I wish to assimilate into that culture, that I mean, that's not genocide because that's something that 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 you know that's a choice. But native people didn't never chose, as, as, at least not in mass. We never chose to abandon who we are. Look, there are there are people. The the bulk of the population, in fact, all of the population of the United States, are people who either. Immigrated, migrated, or were kidnapped and forced to be a part of of this country. I mean, white people didn't come here uh, against their will. I mean, some did, but (laughs) indentured servants and the like. But white people came here to make money. And you know what? The most impoverished immigrants from Europe and and other, other places came because because they couldn't fix where they lived. So they understood that money could be made. Why how could money not be made? You the land got be taken from native people for free. The resources are essentially being taken without paying for it. So yeah, there was all kinds of opportunity for for people to come to our homelands and and achieve wealth. Now, of course, not everybody does that. The, the people who really achieved wealth were the were the limited few, the aristocracy, the white aristocracy. But it, it's you know we we have to have some honest conversations about racism, and you can't have a conversation about racism in the United States if you're only good if you're going to confine that confine that conversation to the black experience, because. The black experience and the native experience are too are are too entwined to try to ignore part of it. I mean, look when we talk about somebody like Harriet Tubman. Yeah, it's really nice to make it sound like the way that she managed to survive when she was fleeing slavery was divine intervention. Oh, the Lord came down and, and guided her. No, you know who guided her? Native people. One of, one of the key components of the success of the Underground Railroad was the fact that Native people were a part of it. We knew the land. We, see, slavery wasn't profitable for Native people, or, you know, to use Native people, because we knew the land too well. We could escape. I mean, so the idea of, of, of holding a Native woman captive and, uh, and then using her for breed stock, or sending Native people to the Caribbean, See, that was the other thing that was done. Take a, take a native person, enslave them, and then send them to a place that they're not familiar with. Oh, and then, then then you can have a successful slave trade with native people. But see, nobody talks about that stuff. And I'm not trying to, to diminish the 1619 Project. You know, you know, Juneteenth, the celebration of the, the, the ending, the, the official end of slavery, sorry. Native people were still being slaved down on the West Coast. I mean, native people. Nobody even puts numbers to the to native people who experienced slavery. Nobody really puts numbers to to native people who experienced massacres, who experienced you know death by the intentional spread of uh, of disease, and it was intentional. Look, Lord Jeffrey Amherst is it, ha, penned the letters. That essentially create ownership of the first use of of, of biological weapons against uh, against an, an, an enemy, and for even though we were no, there was no reason for us to be an enemy. Lord Jeffrey Amherst, and look, there's a suburb of Boston named after him. There's a suburb of uh, of Boston or, uh, of Buffalo named after named after this guy, but he he penned letters to say no, we, we would be wise to, um, to just. Distribute smallpox-infected blankets to Native people. What a convenient way to to eliminate a population that that is unnecessary, or worse, an obstacle to the spread for white people. You know, to to you know, to again to acquire more lands. And the Pilgrims didn't come to Plymouth, and without the foreknowledge that disease had already begun to wipe out some of the the native people and that there was already tillable soil. They knew that. I mean, why do you think so many places in New England have the word field, field, Springfield, Pittsfield, Mansfield, all of these? Fields don't exist naturally, folks. I mean, there's some level of meadows that that will, you know, exist. But the reason there were fields is because native people had cleared. And that native people were already farming. We didn't till soil. We farmed in a different manner. But white people knew about that. They they already had the heads up, and that's why, you know, the, the Mayflower it didn't get lost. It wasn't intended to go to Jamestown. Those those pilgrims who were involved, who were in charge of that ship, knew exactly where they were going. See, everybody wants to make it sound like all these things happened by accident. Oh, disease spread by accident. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. I mean. The conflicts that existed between Native peoples that are recorded by Europeans, the reason they're so well documented is because Europeans started those conflicts. They didn't happen accidentally. Native people had coexisted, peacefully coexisted in this hemisphere for thousands and thousands of years. Look, I'm not saying there was no conflict, but but the bloody conflicts that existed in New England, in particular, involving Native people, they were all instigated by uh, by white people, by the colonists. you know, and look, to a certain extent, like I said, when we we talk about words like tribe and tribalism, Native people have grown to accept some of this stuff. We we hear these these characterizations made of us. We hear you know, how Hollywood defines us. And and I got to tell you, when there was a, one of the parts of American history uh, involving um, World War II was the fact that my people, the Haudenosaunee, rejected the idea of being forced into, uh, by the draft. And, so one of the ways to smooth some of that over was for our chiefs to make a separate declaration of war against the Axis powers. So native, some of the native leadership went to Washington, D.C. to, to make that declaration. <laughs> and if you, if you see any pictures of that, you will see these native people. And look, they were our relatives going to Washington DC you know what they're wearing Plains Indian headdresses that's not our culture we uh, our people didn't wear the the headdresses in the style of the plains native people they didn't they they we our men were gustoas and and the, and the feathers were uh, of, of a specific orientation they weren't these long you know headdresses you know with eagle feathers you know running down their backs no that wasn't our culture. That wasn't that wasn't us. But Hollywood said that's what an, what an Indian looked like. So we even conformed to the stereotype that was created. You know, look, I had um, uh, Phil Zimbardo on on my show you know, just just last week, and what Phil uh, had proven, or in his research and in his experiments, like the Stanford Prison Experiment was that if you create stereotypes and you are adamant and strong in enforcing those stereotypes, people will conform to them. Well, Native people did too. We conformed to some of the stereotypes that were created about us. I mean, we know better now, but coming out of the 40s and the 50s, Buffalo Bills, Wild West shows, and all that stuff, we didn't even know how to be quote unquote be Indians. <laughs> we had to we had to learn from Hollywood. We had to ask white people what it was what it meant to be a native person. we not we don't ask that anymore. And you know what? The fact that we were ignorant to the ways of white people didn't make us primitive. It didn't make us inferior. I mean, it it, may, it meant that we were um uninformed but we know white people now. We know what the American government is all about, the Canadian government is all about, what state governments are all about. We know when we're being screwed. There isn't always a lot that we can do about it. So many times we can, we, we try to lessen the impacts of it. I'll give you another example. You know, everybody uh, praises the, the code talkers and everybody knows, uh, can re- remember or has recalled the expression Navajo code talkers. Well, for one thing, it wasn't just Navajo. There were many other languages, including my my uh, people's language, Mohawk, It was also used uh, for for codes for the military. And it's, and the, the way the nice way to tell that story. Oh, Native people were so brave, and they they enlisted in the military, and they allowed their language to be used. You know for to, for secure communications. No. Somebody got the bright idea because the Japanese were so good at breaking any codes that the Americans were using for the you know, on the radios. If they could base that code on a language that the Japanese would know nothing about. So the very languages that the United States was killing and destroying and forbidding native people to speak, all of a sudden, they realized there was a military value. There was military value in those, in those languages. So they militarized our language. And then they didn't just recruit Native people. Oftentimes, they they Native people find themselves in front of a judge on some sort of trumped-up charge. And the prosecutor would offer a deal, put it before the judge. Person can either enlist in the armed forces, sign up to be a code talker, or they can go to jail for 15 years. Well, clearly, Native people took the took the. the they didn't know, even know what this was. And now the other myth is that Native people enlist at a higher rate because um, because it fulfills our warrior culture. Like we have this innate bloodlust that is a part of our DNA or our genetics that says we have to be involved in war. We have to be killing uh, and we have to witness the killing of people, either being, being killed or doing the killing. And of course, that is just plain absurd. I mean, the reason that native people have, and I'm not saying we still do, but have enlisted at such a high rate is because of the abject poverty that American society created out of our territories. And honestly, for the same reason that that black people had enlisted, there was this belief that racism wasn't going to persist in the military, the whole band of brothers thing. That if you enlisted in the armed forces, you could stand side by side with dignity with every other American and be treated equal. Well, that wasn't true, but that was the belief. And it was almost like, well, you could do something that would earn you, you know, some sort of blessings from your from your from your uh, oppressor. I mean, some people enlisted in the hopes that they be, could become American citizens. Not everybody. And that was part of the reason they passed the citizenship act as well. We you know, we'll you know, we'll pass a blanket law that declares that all native people are citizens. I'll tell you that's as racist as hell. But you see, when we say that People are uncomfortable. I mean, we can we can use words like genocide and massacres. We can we can talk about all of this stuff, but when Native people cry racism, oh, there you go. Now you are going to play the race card. Well, it ain't about playing the race card. So when when I suggest that white people using Native people for their amusement and entertainment as mascots for their high school or their middle school, or their elementary school, that it's racist? Oh, there you go. you got to play the race card. There's nothing racist about mascots. Pardon me? Excuse me? What other people are used in this way? Could you honor a Jewish person by making them your school mascot? Or a black person? Or a Hispanic? Look, there. Were, I mean, for a while there were... Um, there were some Middle Eastern imageries that were used look I mean, even one of these fraternal orders of whatever the Shriners, you know this was a, a, that which still exists today it, it had this middle Eastern theme to it well that was problematic through some of the conflicts that the United States was involved with in the Middle East and there were and there were you know the use of sultans and other you know types of you know uh, characterizations or or stereotypes used for school. None of those exist anymore. None of them exist anymore. The only people who are used for mascots are Native people. Look, I've said it before again, and I'll bring it up again. Blackface was a phenomenon in the United States. And I don't just mean Al Jolson, who was at one time the the top-billing performer in the United States who performed in blackface but blackface was a dominant part of of American entertainment kids were wearing blackface for Halloween blackface on on television and not just vaudeville that you know were where the most contemporary people don't necessarily you know want, want to bring that forward blackface was was a dominant part of American entertainment and culture but it isn't anymore It's condemned. In fact, most people, and these pictures still come out, who are caught on film (laughs) or in pictures or video or whatever of blackface have to do damage control. They've got to apologize profusely. They've got to say, look, I was young and I was stupid and that kind of stuff. Nobody tries to defend blackface. They ask for forgiveness for it. Redface, however, but... Then we're going to be told that it's that it's not racist. Getting back to WBFO, <laughs> I know I took a long way around this local NPR station. So the moment that white boy killed those of that horrific scene, that horrific act of his, where ten people, black people, were killed and three others seriously injured, at a at a, a Tops Friendly Market of all places. The conversation about racism had no room for Native people. This NPR affiliate actually ran a series called "What's Next," and and it was framed about what's next after May Fourteenth, the massacre in Buffalo. And each episode usually had three segments to it, where they talked to either Black leaders or educators or policymakers or or whomever. Um, community activists, you know any a large number and, and, and predominantly black folks, they were given an audience, an audience they never had before. They never had microphones put in front of them before. All of a sudden money flowed to these communities, to their food banks and to their educational needs. all, all of a sudden all of these resources were made available. So it kind of begged the question so is that blood money? It took the murder of almost a dozen people, well, 10 people murdered and, and thir- three others seriously injured by a white supremacist to grease the, to grease the gears? But I'll tell you, and, and I mentioned it on this program before, one of the, one of the you know, prominent black leaders of, of Western New York who is the assembly leader in the, in the state legislature in New York, New York State, Crystal People Stokes? When she met with a group of Seneca's to talk about the ongoing conflict over revenue sharing from their casinos, and one of those counselors met, used the word racism, she, she said, don't you dare. Don't you dare bring up racism after what happened to my people. I mean, she said that. But you know what? She said it, but everybody else felt it, meant it and acted acted that out. That's what WBfo did. How could we dare put you on the radio to talk about the racism that Native people experienced after black people were murdered by a white supremacists I'll tell you how you do it. you allow us to participate in the conversation about racism but no, when we talk about system, the systemic nature of racism, like I said, systemic doesn't mean it. When, when, we, when we talk about racism being embedded in across the industries and, and the, the segments of American society, politics, um, the, the law, you know, the judicial branches, the, the commerce stream, the educational system, it isn't a failure. It's a design. This isn't a failure of the system. This is a system that is designed that way. So when the local news affiliate or um, public radio affiliate in Buffalo jumps on this race killing, there was no room to have Native people talk about their experience. And we would have enhanced that conversation just like we would enhance... The the 1619 project or any or, or or critical race theory. But we're excluded from it. Hey, look, I'm not blaming black people. I gotta tell you, I listened to that to that series. And you know what? This series, this what next series on WBFO, it's probably gonna win awards. It's probably gonna win broadcast awards. Nobody's gonna notice that Native people were left out. Even though I would say the majority of the black guests who were part of, who, who have been a part of that series, and I mean up to really recently, I mean this week, at least once a week on that series, and this is a, uh, every day of the week, five days a week, one of those guests mentions indigenous people as a part of this racist experience. But then the hosts of the show just gloss right over it. It never even gets acknowledged by the host, even though the guests bring us up. But we're not on the show. And you know, and the crazy part, they did one segment that was that had a native person on it. But it had nothing to do with race. It they didn't even bring up the relationship that or what the native perspective was on the murders that took place in Buffalo. It was a filmmaker who was having, you know, a a special showing of some of the short films that he was uh, um, helping to uh, curate. Nothing to do with racism. Nothing to do with the native experience as it relates to racism. No, it was a feel good. It was a feel good segment. And I think they put that on because, frankly, I had sent a couple of emails, never never got a response. And look, I'm not trying to put NPR or any NPR affiliate on a pedestal. But I'm just trying to demonstrate how systemic and how, how the, the systemic design works. I mean, it was easy for these folks to ignore us. It's easy for them to continue to ignore us. And it's also easy for the governor of the state of New York, a Democrat, I might add, to still squeeze native people, still try to harm our opportunities to prosper, even in the areas of gaming. I can't emphasize enough how frustrating it is to be denied a seat at any racial equity table. And, but, I, but I've come to realize that that's just what it is. I mean, if I don't have an opportunity like this one that WPFW gives me or that WBI gives me or that the open nature of, of, of podcast platforms give me, we wouldn't have any. And one of the things that we get told is, well, part of the thing is that, you know, there's an almost an unwillingness to tell your story. We can't reach anybody. Anytime we try to get, you know, get one of the Seneca leaders or get somebody here to – Look, I don't care if you can't get the ones that you're targeting to talk to. There are plenty of us. But you know what? If you pay attention to who does make it in in the mainstream media, it's always the same handful of people. And there's many of us. I mean, I even criticized um, uh, Roll Peck's um, exterminate all the brutes. I had had my friend Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz on the program. And even though I I thought that that miniseries or that that series Exterminate all the brutes was, was incredible, the one area was uh, that that really frustrated me was when uh, Raul Peck had introduced um, what it, you know what he was regarding as successful Native Americans, Native people who who had who had found success, and every one of the ones that he put up there were people who found success within the American system, in politics or, you know, a, a, a um, poet laureate or whatever else. I mean, somebody who, who was successful in that marketplace. There was nobody that he put up who was successful at leading our own people. Only people who were successful at crossing over into that Crossing over from, from an assimilation standpoint, and and Roxanne agreed with me, and, and I don't think it was intentional. I think you know you're you're producing these these kinds of documentaries or these kinds of you know, and, and, and that wasn't even a documentary; it was a docudrama kind of really. Um. And you try to communicate that, and if you don't know any better, and look, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz was a great consultant, but you know what? I got to tell you, she's not native. If Somebody had asked, <laughs> and, you know, and I say it, look, I, not just because I'm offering myself to be a consultant on any of these projects, but there are other people like me. There are plenty of people that I'm associated with in the activist community, in Native communities across the, you know, the U.S. and Canada, who could adequately address and provide suggestions on who we think are successful Native people. We don't measure success by how far up the political scale we go or, or the, uh, the income scale we go. No, that's not how we measure success. We measure success by what, how much a person can give to their community. And I don't mean just things. I mean give of themselves. And not give of themselves to leave themselves impoverished or, or, or somehow bled out. But if you can develop a skill set that enables you and allows you and encourages you to give back to your community in some way, whether it's through education, advocacy, activism, maybe financial as well, that's how we measure success. And you know what? We've always measured success by that. Not by how much we could accumulate, but by how much we can give. And it's, it's really pretty sad that Americans don't have that same um, standard for measuring success. But I mean, so this is our challenge. And again, it's why I'm so grateful to have WPFW and WBAI give me an hour each week, essentially, to, to go through this and to offer a perspective. I mean, maybe nobody thought to include us as part, in part of the dialogue with 1619, actually, I got and I got to say, we are beginning to be woven into that conversation. Maybe nobody thought to include us in a conversation about critical race theory and the intersection of law and racism. Well, I'm saying that we, I'm saying you can't ignore us. But I tell you, nobody can say that they didn't think to include us in a conversation about racism because we've been pounding on that door. I personally have been pounding at it on that door and it's shut down every single time. The mainstream media, the educational system, the political system, the commercial system does not want to acknowledge that native people have been and continue to be victims of racism. In fact, the failure to acknowledge that is in it of itself a racist act. For WBFo, the NPR affiliate in here in Buffalo, to leave us out of the conversation when they claim when they boast about their racial equity desk Erasing us and ignoring us is a racist act. It's not an oversight. It's not a mistake. It's it's the design. Look, there's no... They can't see value. See, look, these murders, this murder that took place, 10 people in Buffalo, I hate to say it, but we've heard... News shows and, and broadcasters say before if it bleeds, it leads. It's a windfall for them when a crisis happens. Like I said, mark my words, this what next series that WBFO put out since the murders on, on May 14th will win awards. WBFO will be an award winning broadcaster because of the series. Why jeopardize that by bringing Native people into the conversation? It's not a mistake. It's not an oversight. It's a strategy. We don't, we not only don't fit into the strategy, but the perception, their view, and I think they're wrong, is that we undermine their strategy. We undermine their messaging, and I think they're wrong. I think we are a critical part of the 1619 Project. I think we are a critical part of any conversation about critical race theory. To have a racial equity desk or a diversity, equity, and inclusion program at your workplace or at your school and not address the native experience, is a travesty. And it's not just that it's a travesty to us. You're failing your own people by not allowing some ownership to the darker parts of American history and to the darker parts of contemporary American policy. How can you expect to fix things? And of course, the answer is you don't. You, what happens is there's opportunities that present themselves in tragedy. But without that tragedy, those opportunities might not happen. Look, if some hellacious thing happens on a native territory, like, for instance, in Saskatchewan, um, where two native men went on a stabbing spree and killed, you know, killed a bunch of people, injured a bunch of people, and then ultimately lost their own lives as they were being pursued. There's probably an opportunity that's created out of that for somebody. It's not going to serve our people well, but somebody, somebody will be served by it. It allows attention to be raised and oftentimes money to free up for a program that probably will be ineffective. You know, one of the things that the black community of Buffalo continued to clamor about in the wake of the murder that took place in May was that they needed to have ownership. They needed to have control of some of the community programs. They didn't need somebody to come in to implement a program for them. But I got to tell you, even in the wake of the murders that took place in Buffalo, they still had the city districts gerrymandered against black people. Black mayor, you know, prominent black politicians like Crystal People Stokes, and black people were still marginalized as, as far as representation in the city of Buffalo on the city council. This There's no plan to fix this stuff. And the stuff that I'm talking about, the, the experience that native people have, there's no plan to fix it. So guys like me, and there, and there are many people like me, continue to make the noise we make. You know, I think I should do that. I think I should do a show where I dedicate the hour to promoting other voices like mine. Because maybe tired, people get tired of listening to me. I, I don't know. I'm not by any means a radio phenomenon or a podcast success or, you know, a viral success. Or nothing like that. It's not my goal my goal is to provide some truth in a atmosphere and an environment that hates truth if it's unco- if if it's inconvenient and if it doesn't serve them i mean you know when when the opportunity to to shine a light on some atrocity comes up and that it can be profitable or if it can you know, make you look good, then people are all about it. But I had to address this because I continue to to battle against the systems that want to deny that the Native experience is an experience of racial bias and racism and victimhood. So I want to thank you for listening. Uh, Again, I encourage you to support WPFW, if you go to their donate website, which is WPFWDC.org slash donate, uh, I encourage you to make a donation to WPFW, and uh, I would thank you very much if you would do so. I am John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio.